Welcome to the Firetime Podcast, where it's never hot enough, slow is fast, and the way to win is to make it so stupidly easy to buy from you that there's no excuse not to. I'm your host, Tim Reed. And once again, I'm so excited to be here today. Welcome to the Firetime Podcast. Well, today's conversation is one that I've been looking forward to for a while. We're going to be speaking with Megan Lee, who was actually on our podcast to start this season out on the panel that we had at the expo about a woman's approach to the sales process. And I was really excited to get to talk with her and and just dive a little bit deeper on her story and the things that she's bringing to the table for our industry. As we jump into the conversation, you'll find out that she's second generation in the barbecue industry. Her dad, Kevin Lee, has been around for a long time doing work in the space. And it's really cool that his, his daughter has ended up in it as well. And truly, like she's one of the the leading women in our industry that that's paving the way. And there's a lot that I think you guys are going to pick up in this conversation. We we hit marketing, we hit the sales process, we talk about how to approach target customers, and I I really think that there's going to be a lot here for you. Now, before we jump in, we still have some Firetime journals available. If you haven't heard about these yet, we did a printed journal this year, and these things are just incredible. It's over 150 pages long, broken down into the eight departments of a hearth retailer, right? You've got sales, you've got leadership, installation, service, grounds and warehouse, like every single department with articles, checklists, and bonus content that is structured to help you run your business better. We had people tell us that getting the journal was worth everything that it costs to come out to the show in Atlanta. And and that means a lot. But this thing's available online for just $10. We truly are, are just covering the freight cost to get it to you. And actually, in many cases, it doesn't even cover the freight cost because it's so big. But that's okay. If you go to itsfiretime.com slash journal, you can pick one up. And when these things are gone, they're gone. But I guarantee your business is going to be better for it. So I'm going to jump out of the way and you can hear this conversation that we have coming with Megan Lee. I've got a few thoughts at the end based on what we talked about that I want you to hear. But first, let's take a listen to this conversation. Joining me from Atlanta, Georgia is a key account manager with Luft Lighters. I'm here today with Megan Lee. Megan, how you doing? Good. Thanks for having me today, Tim. Yeah, totally. I'm really excited to have this conversation. You know, we got to hear a little bit from you back in our first episode this season when we talked about kind of a woman's approach to the sales process through that panel at Expo. And there was uh, just a ton of value given there. And I'm really excited to just kind of dive deep on your mentality, your story and your approach to sales in our industry. So thanks for being here. Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited. You know, I, I told this story, I think a little bit during that panel, but We've we've only met once in person, and I first actually heard about you through Grant Falco. He interviewed you and um, another woman for the Firetime magazine. In our, it was an article about the HPBA's women's mentorship program, and he called me afterwards. and He's like, "Tim, you have to meet Megan. Like, she's doing awesome things." And and so yeah, I'm I'm just really excited for this to dive in. Can you fill us in at the, just to start this out? I, I know that your your father has been in the industry for a long time. Can you talk about just kind of your journey growing up kind of with the industry and, and how you got to where you are now? Yeah, absolutely. So I definitely grew up in the barbecue industry, um, especially going to, you know, barbecue competitions, following my dad around. And I remember watching him sell grills. 
um, and being in the trailer cooking. And I would even try to, you know, like help him out whenever he was busy and sell <laughs> grills for him and hand out brochures. But yeah, so I started my career in sales just like my dad. And then uh, Luke found me, thankfully, which has been amazing so far. But my dad's still in the industry. He works with Flame Tech and he truly does have a passion for barbecuing and this industry. And I think it really did rub off on me. So I'm thankful for that. So, okay, you said something and you talked about how from the beginning you did sales. And I feel like for most people, they are terrified of sales. Like most people that haven't done it before, if you just said, hey, can you go try to sell this thing to somebody? That would not be their idea of fun. But it sounded like you were kind of eager at that opportunity, if I read you right. Yeah. So, I mean, I was an advertising marketing major in college and, you know, I didn't really want to work for like an advertising firm, but I knew it was a good major to have just to kind of have in my back pocket. And, you know, I kind of knew I wanted to go into sales. My dad was always in it. I always felt like I had a passion for talking to people and, you know, I thought I was pretty good at it. So I thought I'd give it a shot. And, you know, it definitely is something you have to adjust to, you know, making cold calls and, approaching a stranger like it's it's different and it's uncomfortable but I think once you get the hang of it it becomes a little bit easier uh and I still think it's uncomfortable yeah you know it's funny I talk about this actually quite a bit that I I love sales and and I think it's I think it's the coolest job out there but to this day I still fight the fear you know, if I'm going into a big meeting or if I'm yeah. making a follow-up call I still fight that but that's okay I think that you know yeah, if if you know that you're doing something that's great and that is serving people, that fear is almost an indicator that it's like, no, I should push into this. This is this is this is challenging my comfort zone, and it's actually growing me to do it. So I, yeah, that that that's awesome. I didn't realize that you were an advertising and marketing major. How how has that shaped your mentality as you as you look at the industry? I think it's really helped me actually, especially being in a small company with Luft, um, and then being headquartered over in Sweden. You know, our our marketing and uh, creative guy and team, they're over in Sweden. So it's, it's, I think it's important for me to have that eye and to kind of know what's working in the industry and what's good because they're not here in the States. And it's hard for them to gain that perspective being over in Sweden. Um, and I think it's fun too. Yeah. I, I, I'm a, I'm a huge marketing nerd. And so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm really pumped about that. Maybe we'll have to circle back on that before the end of the conversation. So you went, you went to college and, and, and you got a advertising and, and marketing degree. That's terrific. So how did you end up deciding to go into the industry? Did you know ahead of time that's what you were going to do? Or were you truly like looking at all your options and then, and then this Luft opportunity came your way? No, I had no clue what industry or what I wanted to do. I graduated right um, at the peak of the pandemic. So I didn't, you know, I didn't walk across the stage or anything like that. And I think the world was kind of just super shocked in that moment. We're like, what are we going to do? People were laying off everybody and like nobody, you know, nobody was hiring really. So it was kind of scary, you know, like, shoot, what am I going to do? And, you know, I found this sales job and it was one of those jobs that was hard work. Like you're putting in a lot of calls um, and not seeing a lot of, you know, outcome with it, but it taught me so much about how to sell and be personal bull and not be scared to, you know, walk up to someone. But as, as you say that, like I, I did some sales coaching for 
some different companies across the the country during the pandemic. And a lot of it was like building out a follow-up process. How do we track our jobs in a CRM to understand where our customers are at in the pipeline, identify their next step and help them take it. And, you know, in, in a lot of ways it, it has been hard. Like I know that demand has been, has been really, really big, but at the beginning of the pandemic, like when we didn't know what was going on, there was a lot of punches in the face. And, when you're making those follow-up calls and people are saying, no, you know, we're, we're, we're locked down in our house. We don't know what we're going to do. You know, that can get disheartening. But I do think, especially in sales, there, there really is something just gained as, as you get the door slammed on you and as you, as you get metaphorically punched in the face that I, I just I don't know if you can learn without that happening. And, and I, I just think about my own journey about like, you know, some, some pretty uh, severe times when the door's been slammed in my face it in hindsight, it's actually given me like muscles that I didn't realize. Like I wouldn't have had those muscles to flex if that wouldn't have happened in the past. Right. It kind of shows you, okay, it's okay. You can just shake it off. Yeah. And you know, when you are making those calls or you're nervous to talk to someone, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? They're just going to say no. <laughs> so do you mean to move on to the next one, you know? Yeah. Oh, that's so good. Okay. Well, so let's, let's talk about this. So you, you, you go through college, your father was in the industry, you've got some experience and, and you end up at Luft. And, and I mean, I've got to imagine that from your perspective, being around it for so long, you have seen a lot of things good and bad that the industry has done. But, but first off, I want to ask like, what do you, what's your perspective on what the industry has done? Well, I think that the industry overall is super resilient, um, making it through the pandemic. And I also think that it really has diversified over the years. You know, I never went to any trade shows when I was younger, but seeing that there's outdoor entertainment and indoor entertainment, like billards and fireplaces and barbecue, patio, I mean, you name it, it's really I think adding in all these new things has really helped our industry to thrive and truly to become more of a lifestyle, not just an industry. But I think that since it's become kind of that lifestyle, it's it's easier for people to buy into, you know, and it was easier for me to learn how to work this industry because to me, I already viewed it as a lifestyle, not necessarily like a job or something, you know. So I think that's really helped us over the years. Yeah, it's funny that you say lifestyle. I, I hadn't thought about it until you said that. But I remember for me, this is probably going back 12 or 13 years as, as a bonus. One, one year, the company I worked for gave me a big green egg. And well, maybe, maybe it was 15 years ago. It was a while ago. Because I'm like early 20s, dirt broke, not responsible. And all of a sudden, I've got this like $1,200 barbecue. I felt a few things. One is I felt some status. Like when a customer came in and they were going to drop $1,500, $2,000, I could say, oh yeah, I got one of these things at home. And, and like there was a status feeling with that. That was big. It, it also it changed the way that I sold be- because of the lifestyle. Like when you own a product like that, it, it does become part of your life. And yeah, it's interesting when you, when you think about where our industry started with, you know, wood stoves and, and, you know, basic gas or charcoal barbecues. I, I think at the beginning, it really was a widget, right? This is a box that burns wood for 12 hours and that's it, right? And 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 making your product into a lifestyle brand is is absolutely how you can 
win in the marketplace and stand the test of time. And I, I would say, I think that most of our industry, most of our industry has missed the mark on that. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, we were talking offline, you work for Luft and Luft sells, you know, a high end lighter. And you were talking about one of your, one of your lighters that's a few hundred bucks. Like that, that's a lot of money to invest into something that's going to light your barbecue can you talk about, like, I have to imagine with you just talking about lifestyle, that has to influence the way that you sell this thing, right? Definitely. Because I'm also using it how I'm selling it, which is, you know, taking it when we go camping or car camping, or we're just on the road and, you know, you pull over to go fishing and you want to grill up some hot dogs or something. You know, you're using it in the backyard after you just used it on the ceramic grill to light your fire pit. So I think that really helps me kind of justify that high-end purchase for someone because it's so convenient. And I know it is because I use it for all these things. Yeah. I mean, I feel like for anybody that's listening, whether you're in the barbecue or the fireplace space, turning what you sell into a lifestyle item versus a commodity that has features and benefits will make such a difference in the sales process. I think about like, I'm, I mean, I'm a huge marketing nerd and I'm a big Seth Godin fan. And Seth Godin always says, people like us do things like this. Essentially, that's what marketing is. People like us do things like this. So, you know, people like us that go car camping on the weekends and go backpacking or whatever, we've got this awesome convenient lighter to be able to light our stuff. And it also works in our fire pit outside. Like, it's not just a widget. It's part of our lifestyle. You know, yeah. if you if you have a, a wood stove, you want to sell that as a story of energy independence, of being able to provide for your family when the power's out. Like people who heat their houses with wood stoves have friends who want to live into that same story and heat their houses with wood stoves because people like us do things like this. And I think that lifestyle is really the anchor to it. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, we're not just lighting charcoal or your wood, but I mean, we're creating a fire, which essentially creates family and warmth and memories and food. And I think that's what it's really about. Yeah, that's so good. So, okay. So our industry, I'd agree. Our industry has shown itself to be very resilient. And I think, you know, we have diversified and it's kind of one of those things where it's like, you know, necessity is the mother of invention that, that as we've been forced to due to regulation and other things, we have diversified. And, 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 and again, like our industry is built on relationships and, and all these different things that are great. But I, I mean, I would say our industry also in a lot of ways has, has been complacent. And there's a lot of areas where, where we are just vastly missing the mark. And I'd, I'd be curious on your take on that. Like, where do you think our industry either has been missing the mark or currently is missing the mark? I think it's just because we're, it's pretty old school. And I think that a lot of people are very set in their ways about how they want to do things and yeah. how things should be run, which is it's totally fine. But I think it's really important to bring in the new um, and the younger generation even too. And I think that's really what we're missing out on. I'm with you. I mean, I came into the industry by accident around 18 and, you know, I, I was able to kind of bounce my way around and, and survive, but I think that there's a lot of, of young people in our industry that we chew up and spit out and we kind of make excuses of like, well, they didn't really want to work that hard or, you know, yeah, they wanted everything yesterday. They wanted to be paid, you know, a bunch of money right away. And, and, and I'm sure that there's some truth to that, but 
you know, when I think about it, like most businesses in our industry, like don't have a training program. So if you're 18 years old, you get hired at a fireplace store and there's no training program. Like, would you want to stick around? Like, no, you know, it's intimidating. And I, you know, I'm on the manufacturing side, but I think retail, um, I think it's, it's hard. I mean, it's long hours, you know, you have the weekends and I think it's tough for people. And I think that's where we really lose them. What do you think is the most valuable thing for younger people coming in that would make them stick with the job? Focusing on you. It's kind of like putting on your horse blinders and like, you're not looking at else's progress. You're not thinking about anyone else's progress or this or that, but really just focusing on you, making sure you get your work done and knowing that eventually if you'll do it, you'll be rewarded and, you know, you'll probably be pretty successful. Yeah. I think for me is, you know, my company now is, is really small. We, we don't have many team members, but I, I think that like the, the two things that I keep coming back to, cause I, I'm on the, the tail end I'm, I'm of, of the younger generation, I'm on the, I'm on the older end of the younger generation and and I really think so much of it comes down to like purpose and flexibility. I really think that those things are so important that for young people who have seen the American dream fail for their parents, they've seen uh, just the unhappiness of being a slave to your job and the toll that it takes on marriages and families and everything. I think that there's a lot of disenchantment with that. And so to make the job about something bigger than just yourself, you know, if your company can somehow like serve a higher purpose, even if that purpose is like we exist so that we can create an awesome place for our team members to work, you know, or, or it's like we exist so that we can make a bunch of money and help this cause or whatever it is. Just if, if a team member feels like there's something bigger than themselves that they're contributing towards, I think that's a big deal. And then flexibility. I almost feel like flexibility is a bigger deal than money that, that if I've got some kind of control over my schedule and over, when work gets done, to me, that is so attractive. And, and I know many people that would take less money for that, for that flexibility. Yes, I 100% agree with you. And I think in retail, obviously, there, there are hours the store needs to be open. But I think that there's ways to actually build those things into it to build that flexibility. You know, I think about like, allowing a team member to work remote one day a week when they're working through their CRM doing follow up calls. Um, you know, like truly like not having a policy of blackout days. Like you can take vacation any time of year. Just like there's, I think there's just things like that that are, you know, very, very attractive to younger people who are coming in. Yeah. Experiences too. I mean, with my job, I get to travel and go to all these trade shows and, you know, I'm not just only sitting in front of my desktop um, and making those cold calls and typing in those orders and, you know, the busy work, the nitty gritty. So I think providing experiences not only is exciting, but it also provides a ton of learning experience for you. Yeah, I agree. So we, we've talked about what the industry has, has done well historically and, and where the industry needs to improve. And I would agree that our industry is, is very much set in their ways. And, and, and I, I mean, I, I think that there's, that there's two kinds of companies and this exists for manufacturers, distributors, and retailers. There's, there's those who are set in their ways. They do what they do. They will fight change, kicking and screaming. And I think that they will die the death of a thousand cuts in the next 10 years. And then there's the businesses that are willing to do something different. They're willing to, to look at things from a new perspective and do what it takes to win. I, I just, I, the, going to the trade show this year, I feel like that's never been more true, but for, for you, like 
what do you feel like you're bringing to the table that's a, that's a new perspective that hasn't been there in the past? Um, so, you know, I'm new to the industry, so I don't know what I'm necessarily changing the game, but I'm definitely taking advantage of social media and other platforms to reach out to potential new customers and leads. Um, you know, like LinkedIn Sales Navigator is such a great tool. Like it just gets you in front of your lead space so much faster. And I think a lot of people kind of miss out on those tools that the internet has for us to use. And I also think you can just kind of skim through a bunch of leads, at least for me. Um, And it's really easy to just go through the busy work, but doing your research and putting in that work on the front end really pays off down the road. That's excellent. Yeah. Well, the social media thing is so true. And I really believe, especially in the barbecue space, your company can absolutely make a difference with social media. It doesn't take a ton of followers, but it, but barbecue is one of those things that you can create a, a brand that, that actually becomes a household name where on the fireplace side, you just, you don't have a chance. The, the products aren't purchased enough. The, the social aspect isn't there, but man, I just think about like, it's stereotypical, but every man wants to be the king of the backyard barbecue, you know? And I'm sure that, we, I'm sure that women do too, but like speaking from a guy's perspective, like that just, there's something in there that, that just exists in me that wants to be the king of that backyard space. And so, so with barbecue on social to have a channel where you're taking pictures of awesome food, you're featuring rubs and spices and grills and lighters that are working really well. I think about Grant Falco, you know, his, he, he's crushed it on social media through the barbecue channel. And he's been really intentional that when, when they're marketing their store, like the, the biggest way they're growing their footprint is by having barbecue ambassadors and, and, and folks who are coming in that way. And the fireplace business, they have a different approach in the way that they, that they tackle social media. But I, I, yeah, I think that that's absolutely a way to, a way to win. And many companies like, when it comes to social, they, they outsource to some generic company that doesn't know their products, doesn't know their customers. And you get this lame tagline that's like, look at our new fireplace with the clear view glass <laughs> and the insert proprietary name of, of uh, heat transfer technology here. It's 30,000 BTUs an hour. Ask one of our certified retailers today. And then they literally post the link in the Instagram page, but the Instagram page doesn't link to it. So it's like, this stuff drives me bonkers. And I think that your approach you're talking about is, is powerful. We'll get back to our conversation in just one second. Hey, if you've been listening to the podcast this season and thinking, you know, Tim, I've been listening to this for a while, but I need help putting it into practice, well, you have to take advantage of the online fire time workshop. So back in May, myself, Grant Falco, and the rest of the fire time network team met in person with a select group of retailers in Seattle, Washington for three days. And we walked through building out the 10 step execution process for running a perfect job from start to finish and equipped all of these business leaders with the tools to build a weekly heartbeat report to make sure that they're pulling the right levers and they have visibility on everything that they need for their company. This thing was incredible. Well, we filmed it, we chopped it up into modules, and this is now available as an online course. 
If you've been listening to the podcast and thinking, I just need a little bit more direction, then you have to take advantage of this because it's powerful. And right now is the time of year to put things in place that change your business forever. So don't wait. Go to itsfiretime.com slash workshop and get your copy of the Firetime online workshop. That's itsfiretime.com slash workshop. Yeah, how, how do you approach and target? And I guess as I, as I ask you this question, if, if, if you're a retailer right now, I want you to think about this from the perspective of how would I win a new builder? And then from a sales rep perspective, I want you to think about like, if I'm going into a major market rather than trying to hit everybody, I'm going to target the right players. So, so Megan, how do you do that? How do you decide who to target? And then how do you do it from there? Before we got started, we kind of talked about like the shotgun effect. And I actually um, had a meeting with my team in Sweden over in North Carolina last week. And we talked about this too, but I think it's important not to just take out your shotgun and, you know, shooting, but have that sniper mentality. And like I said before, you know, you put in that research, like, make sure that your work on the front end is going to pay off for the results. And also I think just staying persistent and not you, not being a pest by any means. I don't know if that's the right word, but outreaching and keeping communication frequent, finding out what their wants and needs are. And then when you're able to do that, you're building a relationship with them and then you're solving a problem at the same time. So that's what I try to do. I love that sniper, not shotgun. I'm going to start using that because that is so true. You know, it's, I mean, it's, I, it's so much better to go like an inch wide and a mile deep versus, versus a mile wide and an inch deep. So, okay. So you're, you're looking at a, at a, at a new market, you target, okay, these are going to be the businesses or this is, this is the, this is the target that we're going after. How do you approach them to get them to become familiar with you and your brand and to build value along the way to closing the sale? Yeah, I will tell you, typically I like to send an email first. That way, you know, when I'm calling this person for the first time and they don't know who I am or they don't know about Loof, they might not, I can kind of reference on something. And, you know, I sent you an email a while back or whatnot, but I find more often than not that, you know, don't even email, just call them. Because when you hear someone's voice, it just makes everything more personable and they can tone fluctuate and, and all of that. And I think, you know, you might feel like you're taking up their time with a call, but I feel like they might rather you call than send an email with their other 50 emails sitting in their inbox. I, I totally agree. I can think of so many times where, yeah, emails get ignored and, and it, it is good to reference. If you're like, Hey, I wanted to reach out because I emailed you last week you know, there's nothing wrong with that at all, but there is power making that phone call. And, and a phone call is risky. I think that's where a lot of people are kind of scared to do it because it's easy to send an email, but making that, making that call is scary. So is, as you approach businesses, so you're, you're calling on the phone, how do you stay persistent without getting annoying? I guess I think it's important to read your customer too and kind of, I wouldn't say the vibe that they're giving off, but you know, how how they seem to feel about the product and um, the call and whatnot. But I typically spread it out pretty far because my territory is so big. I have all these states to cover, but I try to give them, you know, three or four weeks or reach out maybe once a month, you know, and I let them know if I call like, Hey, it's, it's Megan with Luke. You're too busy. No big deal. I can shoot you over an email, call you back in a, in a month or two, a few months. 
So I think it's really important to let your customer know that you're listening to them um, and not just selling to them. Yeah, you're following up on their terms. My friend Bradley Hartman, he he talks about it in the context of selling to builders, but I think it's true anytime you're selling B2B. But when you're selling to someone who who is in a business, they find value when you can either save them money, make them money, or make them look smart. And I think that very often sales reps don't have any of those things in mind when they are making a follow-up call. It's 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 they're calling for really no reason except awkwardly kind of towing around the issue that they're trying to get you to write up this order. Um, but when things can be framed as, you know, hey, right now, you know, you're you're using this product and you're you're paying X for it. I want to get you this product where you're paying Y because think about all that money you're going to save. You know, that makes a, a, a business owner or a purchaser or a sales manager look smart when they go to their team and say, hey, I was looking at our numbers and you know, we're, we're paying X for this and we could be paying Y. Now they look smart, right? Or if it's, you know, gosh, you're selling all these barbecues and your customers aren't using them the way that they should because they're not, I'm just thinking about like loof lighters, right? They're, they're lighting them with, with these matches and these fire starters. And, you know, you could make a great upsell. You could make your customers happier and you could grow your, your top line revenue by 300 bucks a sale. I mean, who doesn't want that on a barbecue? And so now you're showing them like, you know, if you can get one out of five and you sell 500 barbecues a year, well, you've just sold a hundred of these things. Like what could you do with that extra money? You know, now, now you're helping them make money and same thing. Like, but I think that those principles are really important when I'm following up, how can I frame this in a way that helps them save money, make money or look smart in front of the people that, that they work with. So I'd love to know this as, as you kind of survey the, the country, what do you feel like the best retailers are doing to connect with customers? I think just staying interactive with their customers and, you know, having, you know, events and, you know, social media platforms where they're giving giveaways or giving barbecue tips or fireplace tips or this and that. I think that really makes a difference, especially now more than ever uh, because of the pandemic. Yeah. I agree. And I think that that's where there's some reps that have, have absolutely won. I think about there's there's a rep on the East Coast, Mike Ann Schultz for Travis Industries. that has got a great social media presence. And and he follows all of his dealers. He tags them in photos. He he comments. And and, and again, as a, as a sales rep, I think about, you know, for, for most sales reps, your job's not going to be to get 10,000 followers. But man, if you follow all of your prospects that are in your markets and you regularly tag them, comment, like direct message them, feature them in your posts, like that builds you so much credibility. It's just that branding piece that you're always in front of them, you're building trust and it just sets you up in so many good ways. And that's cool to see some of the best retailers doing that too. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, it's not only free branding for, you know, yourself, your company, your product, but also, you know, your customer. And I think that's really amazing. Yeah. So to close this out, when when you're working with with clients, you talked about this a little bit in the sales panel at, at the expo. What what do you think is the most important thing to build trust? I guess maybe I'll ask you from the opposite angle. If you're going to buy something that's like a value, a, a high a high end value purchase, and again, whether that is a three hundred dollar purchase, a five hundred dollar purchase, a ten thousand dollar purchase, doesn't matter. But if it's if it's a if it's a high end value purchase and you're buying it, what 
helps you build trust with the person that's selling to you? So I'll give an example. Around Christmas time, me and my boyfriend were getting last minute Christmas gifts for everybody. And we're like, oh, let's go in this boot store. We really love these boots. It's a nice brand. And, you know, he might have intended on buying something, but I had no means on buying anything that day for myself, especially not boots. But you walk into the store, there's great lighting, there's great music. You see groups of people, they all have their uh, personal, you know, sales associate. Um, everybody there's wearing the, wearing the boots. Um, you know, you walk in, they hand you either a cocktail with like a shaved ice cube or, you know, a free koozie in a can and they had nice sofas. So it was like the whole experience was awesome. It made you feel expensive and it made you feel like this company and these salespeople were investing in you. Um, and I bought boots that day, (laughs) but I think it just goes to show that being, you know, attentive to your customer and, you know, making that eye contact and making them feel that, you know, you're investing in them. I think it goes such a long way. Yeah. It's funny that, you you know, a lot of people will mention, well, the salesperson did this and this and this, and, and there's great things salespeople can do, but I love that you mentioned the aesthetic and that's so true. Like, if you're making a high-end purchase, like you said, walking in and like the music is appropriate for 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 the venue or for the store and and there's seating. I love that you said seating. Like sitting is such a comfortable environment to sell and to buy in. It really is. And groups of people. So you feel like I'm not I'm not the only one here. There's other people that do this. And and it just seems like it you're describing like it looks like they're in the business. This isn't their first rodeo. This is what they do. Yeah. Like whenever I checked out, I was like, whatever y'all did, it worked. Like I bought way too much stuff. And I'm like, there has to be some type of statistic about the environment and the cocktail and everything. Cause it, it really worked. Yeah. Uh, th- have you told anybody like any of your friends about that experience since it happened? Yeah. It was such a memorable sales experience. Really? Okay. So, I mean, I'm just thinking about this, like people like us do things like this, right? I mean, because it sounds like it started with your boyfriend, yeah, and then that went, and then it went to you, yeah. So yeah, your boyfriend buys boots like this. So of course, you know, his girlfriend's going to buy boots like this, and you have this amazing experience. So then you tell your friends who are going to, you know, buy boots like that. I yeah, I, I think we undervalue those experiences. I think that many of our showrooms are are dusty and dirty, and the salesperson that is working with the client doesn't have a process. And they're in a rush and and that doesn't create an experience. But just like you said, I mean, that, that's a memorable experience. And it sounds like they had a process. Yeah, like they had a process. it's the same process for every customer. They're not, they're not reinventing the wheel every single time. Yeah, absolutely. And they, you know, spent time with us and, you know, as a, as a shoe salesperson, as a boot salesperson, I feel like it's kind of like quick, you know, you're going fast, but I mean, they spent like 30 minutes with us trying on boots. I love it. I love it. It you, yeah. When you get those experiences, like if you're at a great restaurant and the service is incredible, the food's incredible. What like what do you do? You tell your friends about it, and 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 that word of mouth marketing is so incredibly powerful because I mean, it costs your company nothing. And you might say, well, yeah, yeah, it does because we have to pay for the cocktails and we have to pay for the lighting. It's like yeah, but like just bake that in the cost of your products. I mean, like it doesn't cost you anything to to do that, honestly. But the intentionality of creating that experience is amazing. I I love that. That's a great story, Megan. So 
to close it out, I guess the the last thing that I would ask you is for for you being someone that's that's new in the industry as as you've kind of come up watching your dad, what would you say is is the most important thing that that young women in our industry can know from someone who's who's really beginning to lead the way? I think also I'll go back again to the blinders. I love my blinders. I think they're awesome. But I also think just staying strong. And, you know, we've talked about this before in the panel and other interviews, but we don't have a lot of women in this industry. So sometimes you kind of feel like a lone soldier. I mean, um, my team's all men besides me. So, you know, it's just something to get used to. And I'm an only child, so my dad grew me up to be, you know, a tomboy. I can be a girl's girl, too. But, um, you know, that just to stay confident and strong um, and use your resources and network with other women in the industry because, you know, we have each other and it's, it's powerful. I love that. Well, Megan, you gave us a ton of value. Thanks a ton for being on the show today. Awesome. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Megan. I thought it was awesome to get to know her a little bit better. And there's so much there. I mean, I, I love these interviews where we get to hear people's stories of, of what brought them to where they are. Because for me, I'm just fascinated by so many things. I mean, the fact that she's an advertising and marketing major in college, I mean, that does so much for her as a sales rep, especially for a company whose headquarters is in a different part of the world. There's so much insight that she has and 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 she can actually put that into practice because of her formal training with, you know, how do we need to position ourselves? Does this branding look right? What would be a content piece that can move the needle with clients who buy this from me or with end user customers? I mean, it's really powerful. But really, there's three concepts that I walked away with in that conversation that I think are worth spending some time on. And the first one is this idea of a sniper, not a shotgun. That is so powerful. And I'm going to start using that phrase now. I mean, it's about being a sniper, not using a shotgun. What's typical in our industry? It's a shotgun approach. Email blast, right? Blast the whole list. Give them everything. If we got five new products, tell them about every single one, right? Quantity over quality. And I mean, it's just wrong for so many reasons. It's not effective and and it doesn't move the needle on your business. But the sniper mentality of this is who I'm going after. I'm going to go after the one or the two or the three people or businesses. I'm going to craft my content to be specific for them. And I'm going to go all in on these few rather than the masses. I mean, truly... That's how you build a business and that's actually how you build a brand. So often we try to go after the masses. We worry about impressions and you know how many people did did I get in front of? And that doesn't matter if they're not the right people. And and you know, to make a message for everybody is to make a message for no one. It goes back to like my my punk rock days of playing in a band. When you're on the mixing board and you you turn everything on your EQ up to 10, the treble, the bass, the mids, when you turn everything up to 10, sounds like garbage. You know, it, it's only through precision and focus that you can create a good sound mix. And the same thing is true with our customers. So think about that. Like if if you're if you're a company that let's just say you go after builders, don't go after all of them. Identify who the one or two or three builders are and throw everything you have into getting them versus trying to to make something for everybody. If you're a manufacturer looking at a new market, 
Do not just do a Google search for hearth retailers. I mean, do your research and put in the time, even if it's three, four, five months of work, to win the right accounts because that's what will serve you and that's what will create loyalty with your partners long term. Megan also talked about this idea of a lifestyle. And it's so true. You know, our, our industry, whether on purpose or, or by mistake, in many ways has created lifestyle brands, but I think often we lose sight of it. Like, man, especially in the barbecue space, I, I think about, you know, Kamado grills or pellet grills. I mean, that's a lifestyle. And, and when you're selling someone a pellet grill that's never owned one before, you're inviting them into an awesome way of life that they haven't experienced before. And people get pumped about that, right? They want to be part of, of a winning story. And if, and if you can invite them into that lifestyle brand, you know, they'll, they'll probably buy from you and be really happy and, and better off for it. With fireplaces, we make the mistake of breaking things down into widgets, into decorative fronts, into ceramic burners, and that stuff doesn't matter. It, it doesn't. What we need to do is invite people into a lifestyle and show them how you can become the kind of person who is warm in a power outage, who can provide security for your family. These are, these are aspirational identities and lifestyles that we really want to buy into. And the more that we can start to position our products as a lifestyle, it opens up the door for so many more sales too, right? You know, if, if, if you sell the wood stove, well, what's, what's in the lifestyle of, of burning a wood stove? Hauling, splitting, cutting wood. So, you know, maybe there's an accessory that goes with that at the time of purchase. Maybe a year later, there's an email that goes out with another accessory that now that they've lived in this lifestyle, they need to take advantage of this other thing that can help them solve a problem that they now deal with, right? It's really powerful. The more that we can position our brands and products to be in line with someone's lifestyle and invite someone into a lifestyle that, that makes them feel good and, and benefits them. I, 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 I love that. I just think it's an incredible way to sell. And it's honestly a great way to buy too. It, it changes us from being a, a commodity into something that, that is a value. And I mean, of, of course, it's easy to, to manipulate that just like anything. But I, I think that, that most of the folks in our industry aren't trying to do that. Like we genuinely offer a product that, that offers a great lifestyle to the people that we sell to. You know, finally, when we talked about targeting key accounts and, and, and what's the key, when Megan said research and persistence, I just couldn't agree more. You know, when, when you target a business and you show them that you know them, that you understand them, and that you can help them, it makes it so much easier to buy than when you don't. I, I might have told this story a couple of years ago on the podcast, but there's a time going back about five years when I got a call from a sales rep that was trying to sell us a certain brand of garage doors. At the time, I was working for a company that sold fireplaces and garage doors. And, and he somehow got my number and I'm on the road and he calls me and is telling me about how they make the highest quality. They've been around since 1970, American made, all these different things. And I just said, you know, hey, you know, just so you know, like I'm not the final decision maker on this, but I, I just need you to know that we, we look at our product lines real intentionally. And so I'm wondering what problem do your products solve that our, our current garage doors don't? And he just backpedaled and said, well, you know, we, we got really good quality doors. We've been making them since the 1970s. We have a lot of different finished colors. And I cut him off and said, no, 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 that's great. But like we have other, we have other doors that do that. What's the problem that that your doors solve that our current doors don't? And he just stopped and he's like, you, you know, I'm, I'm not sure. And I was like, well, 
you probably need to figure that out before you go any further. Because I, I can get you a meeting with the decision maker, but they're just going to ask you the same question. If you don't have an answer for it, we're not going to be doing business together. You know, It's that idea of research. That, that was, it was clear that they had done very little research on our company. They hadn't thought about the problems that we had. But if you can, if you can approach an opportunity researching it and coming to them genuinely with, with, Hey, we understand that that this is some pain that you're dealing with right now. And we really think we can help you by doing X, Y, Z. I mean, that is powerful. And, and especially if you combine persistence with it and you follow up over and over and over again, not to the point of annoyance, but, but with, you know, with some fervor saying like, I'm following up because you know, it's kind of making me mad that you're dealing with this pain. You don't have to deal with it. And, and I want to help you. That That is really, really powerful. And again, if you believe in your product and you believe in what you sell, whether it's on the retail side, calling customers back that that have maybe you have, have lost touch with you since you've given them the bid, or if you're trying to win over a builder, or if you're a sales rep trying to win a retailer, that persistence is powerful and it is okay if the heat gets turned up a little bit on it, as long as you're, you're, you're gracious, you can turn that heat up and say, you're dealing with this problem, with this pain, and I don't want you to. It makes me mad that, that every time I drive by your store, I, I see this happening because I know that there's a better way, and man, you can make a lot of money doing it. So I, I took away a lot from that conversation, and, and I hope that you guys did too. And, you know, Megan, like I said, is somebody who's really leading the way for women in our industry. So pay attention to what she's doing, because I know that she's going to be one of the prominent leaders for, for years to come. Now, as you've been listening to this podcast, if it's been a blessing to you and you want to support it financially, you can do that by going to the website, patreon.com slash it's fire time. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash it's fire time. And Man, we do not take the contributions that you guys give us lightly. We, we, we feel an immense burden to be on the hook to deliver content that's valuable for you and relevant and moves the needle. And, and everything that we get every single month, uh, it, it helps us do that. So, so it means the world to those of you that, that are supporting this actively. And we're just we're, we're indebted and, and we want to be able to, to pay that back. Now, as, as you go out today, you know, we are, man starting to get to the back end of, of this season of the podcast. And my hope is that as, as you're sitting here during the off season, or, you know, as Grant would say, the invest season, that with the time on your hands, you really are able to invest and think about, right, what would it look like for us to make our wood stoves a lifestyle product? How would that change our sales process? If we're going to go after a builder, how can we use a sniper approach and not a shotgun where we really target the one or two that we want to get and, and we are willing to invest the time it takes to get it? Those things are powerful and now is the time to do it. You won't regret it. So as we go out today, know that your work matters. We are rooting for you. And as always, we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you for listening to the Firetime Podcast. To learn more, visit the website itsfiretime.com. Music from this episode was written and recorded by In Bloom out of Portland, Oregon. We thank you for listening to the Firetime Podcast, where it's never hot enough, slow is fast, and the way to win is to make it so stupidly easy to buy from you that there's no excuse not to. We'll see you next time. All in to burn and burn.